uh, TV, TV producer Norman Lear, some of us are old enough to, to know who he is. He's had more influence on what we watch in television right now probably than anybody in TV history. In 1975, he had four of the five top TV shows, all in the family, the Jeffersons, Maud and Sanford and Son. And here's a picture, actually, of Norman Lear, 96 years old, and he's still ticking. And, um, but Lear was noteworthy because what he did within the context and, and the uh, sort of area of, of comedy and satire, he, he brought forth, for the first time in television, important social issues. For example, in America, how the poor were looked down upon, um, how race divisions existed, how women were often just simply relegated to the kitchen. He brought these to the forefront. Last year, Jimmy Kimmel uh, met with Norman Lear, and he said, let's, re- let's re- reenact this. Let's do it exactly the same script in 1975 in All in the Family and the Jeffersons. And they showed it on ABC a few weeks ago, and Woody Harrelson played Archie Bunker, Marissa Tomei played Edith Bunker, there's Jimmy Fox as George Jefferson. If you had a chance to watch, if you haven't, it's on Hulu, and it's an incredible for- performance. But it shows how, we ha- how far we've come as a country, but yet, at the same time, how far we still have to go. And we're in the midst of a, sermon, of a series of sermons in the book of Acts, where very much it's about how the church changed the world. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And it's a story written by a guy named Luke of how the church starts and makes amazing changes on society. And it changes the world probably more than any sector, any aspect of society in human history. The church has made more changes. And I think we just take for granted the number of things that we have. But the church did a number of things. They took in the poor. They took in the affluent. They took in Jewish people, non-Jewish people, the uh, lepers, children, and women. And through that, um, because of that, they were countercultural. They're the only group doing that in the first century. There was no one doing that. And not only countercultural, but revolutionary. So this morning, we're going to look at three revolutionary changes the church brought about in regard to the movement of Jesus. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, a few weeks ago, actually a handful of weeks ago, I started right there in Acts chapter 2, and we're just going to jump back to that because it'd be, I would be remiss to not mention this in terms of uh, this topic. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. You can follow along with your teaching notes, or perhaps you have a Bible app. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, translation. Let me pray for us this morning. God in heaven, I pray that um, you would take these words and that you would amplify them. Um, I am vulnerable. Uh, I fall short so many times. I want this to be your time because this is a critically important topic that we need to discuss and be aware of. And Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much that you called, this bride of Christ called Maple Grove Covenant Church into existence 31 years ago. And what a privilege it is to be here and to be a pastor. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? All right, 42 through 47. All the believers devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and a prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. 
They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You can tell, tell right away the repetition of they all together there. There's no division here. They're, they're united together. No matter the race, no matter the social class, no matter male or female, they're united together. And what a beautiful picture, an idyllic picture of the church. And again, no aspect of society was doing this at this time. And when we read this, we, we kind of gloss over it, but you've got to understand just how singular and how unique this was, that they were united together. Let's take a closer look at this in Acts chapter 18. And uh, if you missed last week, or perhaps you're just visiting, uh, last week I, I looked at Paul and Silas in this incredible miracle that they were in jail, and then uh, an earthquake happened, and they were released. If you have a chance, you can watch on that. And I know some people were on vacation and gone uh, this Sunday, and I just want to say to those who are watching on our video cast, uh, welcome this morning. Acts chapter 18, and the setting is Corinth. Corinth was a very important city. In Rome, in fact, it was one of the capitals of the provinces of Rome. It was located 50 miles west of Athens, and it was by two ports. And because of that location, employment was very, very available. And as a result, people just poured in into uh, Corinth. It was a melting pot, kind of like New York City or London. You have just a whole mix of races. You have rich and poor. You have all classes. And this also became an important uh, city for planting a new church. And that's exactly what Paul does here. And the setting is not only Corinth, but about around AD 49 this is taking place. And we have two books in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians, which is Paul actually writing to the church they're going to plant in Corinth. So 18 verses 1 through 3. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Then he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar, so Claudius, one of the, of the Caesars, kicked all the Jews out, out of Rome. And as I mentioned last week, anti-Semitism has been around for a long, long time. Long time. He kicks them out of Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Now, I want to focus on that last verse, verse 3. We have Paul here. He's a leader of this Jesus movement. He's very prominent. He's well-known, and yet he has to work. He's a tent maker. He has to make ends meet. And not only that, he actually has to do manual labor. And, there, you know, at that point, and even today, you wouldn't find a leader of a movement of any kind doing manual labor. It'd be like Prince Charles fi fixing lawnmowers and make ends meet at Buckingham Palace. You wouldn't see that happen. And here's Paul working to make ends meet. In his study on wealth and poverty in the ancient world, Peter Brown traced a radical shift in society's view, view on the poor. Brown writes that often the poor were frequently looked at as an extreme of the human condition. People teetering on the brink of destruction and condemned to the outer margins of society. They were viewed as the others. They were viewed as them and there was us. The poor were looked down upon. But Brown notes the church, the early church, this church, made a change that lasted. The poor were not simply others in the church. 
They were brothers and sisters. They were people with dignity and value. And they had a right, a right to cry out for justice. And they had a right to cry out for the help for need. And it revolutionized the ancient society. So your teaching notes, number one, one of the ways that the revolutionary change that the church brought into the world is found in the church broke down the barriers among social classes. Kind of like what Norman Lear tried to do with his TV shows to show the different classes. And the fact that Paul demonstrates the open doors of the church for anyone regardless of their social class was incredible. And in fact, Paul's working, as I mentioned, in this tent-making shop, and it's owned by Aquila and his wife Priscilla. So he's working for them. But then Paul is leading this church, and he's planting this church in Corinth, and Aquila and Priscilla are instrumental in that, and they're serving Paul. And they're listening to Paul, and they're supporting and helping him. You see that? This, this give and take? It was a level playing field. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a level playing field. Paul's working for Aquila and Priscilla, and Priscilla and Aquila are are serving and helping Paul and and following him in in his leadership. About a year later, in AD 50, we believe, Paul pens these famous words in Galatians. Galatians 3.28, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. I want you to underline this. For you are all one. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, Thomas Cahill, one of our best historians, believes, and he's not a Christian, secular historian, he says, this is the first time ever we know in human history there's any writing about equality. And it's the church. It's what Paul is observing in Corinth. And he says there's, there's no barriers. There's no division. And in fact, our founding fathers, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, they based a lot of their movement towards what, what Paul says here in Galatians 3.28. Radical. So revolutionary change is the breaking down of classes. And also, it's not only the breaking down of classes, rich and poor, but also races. Look at verses 7 through 8 of chapter 18. Then he, Paul, left and went to the, to- the home of Titius, Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. And you can see, begin to see this momentum, the ripple effect of a church that's beginning to start. But the thing that you kind of miss if you don't pay attention, we got Paul, as he says in Galatians, a Jew of the Jew, born in the tribe of Benjamin. And he's staying all night at Titius' house, a Gentile. Okay, to us right now, that doesn't seem like a big deal. That is unbelievable. If you were alive during that time and you heard that a Jewish person actually stayed overnight, slept in one of their beds, ate food with them, with a Gentile, you would say, no way. There is no way that's possible. Well, in the church, it was possible. And sometimes we come across things that seem unbelievable and they just blow us away. Just like this would have been if you were alive back then. I can't overstate it. It reminds me of a, a true story about a guy named Chris Trokey. He was born prematurely. He weighed a measly 3.2 pounds. And I know there's families here that have had kids as preemies. And his pediatrician was Dr. Michael Shannon. He, and, and Shannon really invested in, in, in uh, Trokey. Stood by him until his health was stable. He was a caring and loving doctor. And Trokey survived. 
Now, 30 years later, Dr. Shannon was driving down Orange County's Pacific Coast Highway when a semi T-boned him and, uh, and Shannon's truck got stuck underneath. And right away, his vehicle burst into flames. And right away, a paramedic happened to be there. He yanked him from the flames. Guess who it was? Chris Trokey. There they are right there. Chris Trokey's on the left-hand side. That's Dr. Michael Shannon. In fact, Dr. Michael Shannon has actually taken Chris Trokey's son um, as his, uh, one of his patients. It's just remarkable. And we come across things like this. It's like, no way, unbelievable. And that's the sort of feeling we ought to have when we read about uh, Paul staying overnight at a Gentile house. And what he's doing is that he's showing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no divisions. It's they all together there having things in common. And we all come to Christ as sinners no matter who we are, rich or poor, whatever our ethnicity is, with the same level of need for salvation. And, and Paul um, d- demonstrates that. And God does not play favorites. you got to hear me on that. God does not play favorites after we are saved either by our knowledge of the Bible or our church attendance or our tithing, what have you, where it's a level playing field. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Revolutionary change number two that the church enacted is that the church broke down barriers among the races. And not only that, not only breaking down the barriers of social classes, but also with um, races and also, as we're going to see, with women in leadership. Because... This, is, this was key to the church and Jesus movement. This is why the churches grew around the Mediterranean world and took off, is because they welcomed all people, and especially women. Look at the, let's take a look at verse 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Sancaria, There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. That was the Nazarene vow, by the way. We believe Samson did the same vow where they they grew their hair out and at a certain point uh, would have their hair cut. And it wasn't just going to the barbershop. It was actually an act of worship. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. Ooh, subtle change. Subtle change on the name, order of names, isn't it? It's now Priscilla and Aquila. Okay. And from this point forward in the book of Acts, it's always going to be Priscilla and Aquila. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but in the ancient world, the order of the names made a huge difference. And to actually have Priscilla named first before Aquila is remarkable. That means you can assume that she was a leader. She was a leader. During a time when women didn't have rights, they were below slaves. Here, these are exact quotes I found um, from uh, the ancient world that some Greeks actually prayed to their gods and gave them thanks that they were not made as animals, women, or Jewish people. Some Jewish teachers actually thank God for not making them Gentile slaves or women. And also there's a writing by ancient rabbi, and now for uh, Judaism back then, even today, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the soul of Judaism. But before Jesus, it was, it was actually called the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus comes along, that word became flesh. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but the Torah was so important, so valuable. 
In fact, they would teach their children to memorize the Torah. And as they do, they would actually, as they memorize certain words, they would take honey and give it to their kids because they wanted them to associate something so delicious, so precious like honey with God's word and the Torah. Torah is important. And this rabbi writes this. He would rather burn the Torah than allow a woman to read it. And I'm proud of a church that recognizes that women are leaders. We have women on our staff. We have women on our board. We have guest preachers who are women. I'm also proud to be part of a denomination that actually ordains women and also sends them out as church planters and senior pastors. In fact, one of my former students at Bethel, she called me up last week and said, Hey, Craig, I'm going to be ordained in the Evangelical Covenant. Can you read over um, my ordination papers? And imagine if I said this, uh, No, I can't do that because you're a woman and that just can't happen. Imagine that. And she's so excited. She believes that God called her. And her dream was to be a pastor. And it's now coming to fruition. She is so thrilled. Yet there's numerous churches and denominations. I grew up in one where women could not be, they could never speak from the front. They couldn't even do announcements. Um, they couldn't serve communion. They couldn't take uh, the offering. And, and, and typically what, they, what happened is that in that, my church, and by the way, I'm grateful for a lot of things I learned from my church, so I'm not trying to denigrate my church you know, like in that way, because I, I wouldn't be here without it. At the same time, I don't agree with the things that were occurring with women, because women were good for a couple of things in our church, what happened, because my mom was one of them, is that they could play, play the piano, they could play the organ, or they could put the potluck together, make the meals, or they could teach the children, which I've always found that paradoxical. You know why? Think about it. What's the most influential age? What's the what period of time where most kids, according to like latest stats, uh, most uh, kids and teenagers come to Christ before age 18? 80% come to Christ before the age of 18. So for those churches that think that, well, w- women can, can, can teach the kids when they're actually some, one of the most influential roles in the entire church. I just love it. I just love it. Now I'm going to dive into something uh, and, and walk you through a passage that I think has been um, misused in my mind, misinterpreted, and I'm going to walk through it. And you may disagree with me. That's okay. I'd love to uh, have a conversation with you because when I was in seminary, I had two professors who debated on the role of women in the, in the church. And um, I'm going to share with you what I believe in and um, what I teach and what I support and what our denomination and what our church supports. So... Let's walk through 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent, appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So if you have gold or pearls or expensive clothes on, raise your hand and our ushers will escort you out. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I love that. Uh, For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived. And sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. This passage 
has been leveraged for decades to keep women down. Now, I want to walk through um, an interpretation of this. Okay, and there's another interpretation for those who say, no, it says what it says. Because when it comes to the Bible, I just want to mention a couple things. And this is no, like, the magical interpretation of a pastor. He has the, he has the magical Greek words or he has the magical commentary that really gives us the answer. Not, no, anybody, anybody can find this in a good study Bible or a good commentary. You can find out about this. But there's two ways, there's a couple of ways as we interpret Scripture. Number one is grammatical. We always, we always look at the words, no matter the, no, no matter the passage. We always look at grammatical. So, for example, when God says in Exodus chapter 20, do not steal, it's pretty straightforward. Don't steal, okay? There's nothing like in the Hebrew or in the context there where maybe situationally you can steal. No, it's very straightforward. The words, the grammar, that's what the grammatical interpretation is spot on. That's all we need. But you come into a passage like this, and also, by the way, this is a different genre, okay? Exodus is a historical narrative, and that's read in a certain way. You can't read it the same way as you read a letter from Timothy. That's why a lot of times, Revelation, we read it literally, just the grammatical. You got to look into the context. And when we look at a letter of Timothy, 13 letters he has, all of them are responding to a problem that's going on in that church. And Timothy is the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And he's writing to Pastor Tim. Tim's a young, young pastor. He's just starting out. And what happened is there's, there's some problems happening in the Ephesian church. Well, in Ephesus, and you can look this up in the history books, by the way, this is no like secret, like hidden away. Um, Ephesus was a major city, cosmopolitan city, and it had one of the seven wonders of the world called the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis was a place where uh, women were actually worshipped. They were goddesses. And men were actually denigrated and pushed down. In fact, for the men who were part of the temple, they were male prostitutes. There were prostitutes there. That's, that was their role. And meanwhile, men would worship women. And uh, as a part of also uh, what was happening too is that these women began to come to Timothy's church. And Paul hears wind of this. And they're coming to his church wearing very risque clothing. And they're distracting people from worship. Also, um, because they're not Christians, they're disrupting the worship service. They're talking during the sermon. Never do that. Um, but they're talking during worship. They're talking during prayers. They're causing disturbances. That's why he says, they, I, 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 I want all women to be quiet. That's not a prescription for every woman of every church. That he's talking to a contextual situation in Ephesus. And he's responding to it. They've got to be quiet. And they're wearing gold and pearls and things like that. Again, distracting people in the church. And that's why he points that out. And then also what was going on too is that the women that were coming to the church from the temple of Artemis were actually sharing that uh, Eve was created first. That's why women are superior. And it was Adam who actually sinned first. You see? You see why Paul says that? There's false teaching going on, and he's correcting it. And then lastly, one of the things that, that the women from the Temple of Artemis too were sharing, that, that if you give uh, homage and, and offerings to the Greek gods, you moms will be saved in childbirth. Okay? Now when we read that, does that make sense? Because when you read it simply by just the words right here, it sounds like something out of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. 
If you, if you watch that or read uh, Margaret Atwood's book on that, it's just, are you kidding me? And sometimes we take this and we sort of take this passage and we cherry pick and that becomes our trump card. So we need to look at other passages. What does Paul say elsewhere? What does he, what does he talk about? Well, he says in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, all are what? One in Christ Jesus. So how does that verse line up to this passage right here? That's why it's so important. You can't just take one passage and, and use that for a debate, like some sort of theological kung fu. I have my verse, I'm going to beat you up with it. Um, no, you have to look at the canopy of Scripture. So not only Galatians 3.28, go to Romans 16.7. Romans 16, 7, Paul is, is, is uh, kind of giving a shout-out to his peeps. I'm not sure if they use that, that language anymore these days, but it works for me. He, he says, he's, he's commending, he's thanking all his, his people. And in, in there, in verse 7, he says, And Juna, also known as Julia, he says, Thank you so much. And what he says is that she's in prison with me. Why would she be in prison with Paul? Because like Silas who joined Paul, she's evangelizing, she's teaching, she's leading. And then he says this, she's respected by the apostles. That's a big deal. You can infer, you can bet the house, you can bet your cabin, okay, that she was a leader and she was teaching. If she's respected by the apostles, she had a very important role. And for us, it's very important for us to realize this. And if you want to learn more about uh, women in leadership, there's a great website called Christians for Biblical Equality, cbe.org. And one of our past presidents at Bethel Seminary actually was one of the leaders of that and helping that website come together. And you can read more papers on this. If, if you, like, uh, I don't believe what Craig's saying, dig deeper. You can find some really good articles on this. All right. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, all are one in Christ. The church changed the world because they broke down the barriers of class, of race, and gender. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. And God, that we have women in leadership and we recognize that. We have a long ways to go, Lord, and I just pray that we would continue to advocate for them and support them. Um, alongside men uh, as we lead the church. And God, thank you for your church, the Bride of Christ, that you work in and through to change the world for all the history. And you're not done yet. So as a congregation and also, also as individuals in whatever ministry, whatever things we do, we want to join you in our spheres of influence. We want to join you in your redemptive work bringing the gospel to all people. In Jesus' name, amen.